This week on Hacker in the Fed, your location data may have been exposed for the last 10 years if you drive a certain brand vehicle. Stolen private keys may lead to insecure boot-ups of your computer. Congress gets another notification of a U.S. government breach. And we answer more listener questions about failed hacks and intentional exploits. And we talk about D.B. Cooper. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now a founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsegur. Hector's a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the codename Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested him and convinced him to work with the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, how's it going this week? Pretty good, my friends. Pretty good. Can't complain. It's been busy. I'm sure it's been busy for you as well. Yeah, busy is good, though. You know, yeah, Naxo, we are looking for a new office space. Uh, we've kind of outgrown the last space. So today was our, our tour around New York City, looking at different offices. They all look the same to me, but... Well, maybe if you guys have... Uh, if you do find a spot, make sure you save like a little podcast areas we could record maybe one one episode or two every place that we looked at does have a decent conference room you know i don't know what the sound acoustics would be in them but uh we certainly can try that out i know we've never done a podcast live have we no man not yet yeah maybe that'd be fun to do it to look at each other while doing a podcast <laughs> yeah we could stare into your eyes as you talk about cybersecurity. <laughs> maybe we wouldn't talk over each other so damn much yeah that's true that's true Well, listen, I have to say, I had to do a, a quick thing down in Miami this week. It was very cool. Got to meet some folks out there. And I met some really cool people, mostly CIOs. I would say I don't really interact with CIOs much. I'm usually interacting with CISOs or security engineers. Can you explain the difference between CIOs and uh, CISOs? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My bad. I, I know the audience, uh, some of them hate when we just kind of go through terminology. They hate the acronyms. They, they hate, hate the acronyms. <laughs> I agree. Uh, so you have a CIO, which is a chief information officer. And depending on certain variables, like uh, are, there, uh, are, there, are they wearing many hats, right? Or is it like an immature security program where they just, you know, got a CIO in the last you know, year or as a startup or, you know, like there's a lot of reasons, different variables that would kind of shape what that uh, position looks like. But for the most part, a CIO would be someone that um, puts together policies for information technology uh, or IT. They're setting up or coordinating infrastructure. They're kind of, like I said, setting policy that has to be delegated out to different departments. And they're also, again, depending on how many hats they're wearing, they'll be involved in privacy, information, storing, and, and security of information. And they're very close to the CISO, right? Uh, theoretically, they should be. The CISO, on the other hand, doesn't have to deal with information technology, infrastructure, or policies. Their entire focus is setting policies specific to the cybersecurity program of the organization. They would have to probably be the decision maker on some policies themselves. If you were to look at it in uh, like a hierarchy, the CIO would probably be above and the CISO right below them. Okay, That's not the case with every organization because you may have a CIO. Then you might have a legal department, or you have a CIO with a parallel CISO. And by the way, CISO stands for Chief Information Security Officer. Um, you may also have a CSO, which is the Chief Security Officer, which is slightly different or even completely different, again, depending on the organization. Yeah, and then there's CTOs, Chief Technology Officers. Exactly. Yeah, some of these organizations are get bloated at the top. Yeah, the bigger the organization, the more and more positions they have open. So, for example, you just created, you just brought up a really good point. So, if you have a CIO, then what would be the idea behind a CTO, right? Because 
the CIO would, in essence, be the one coordinating or setting policies for IT. So what would the CTO do at that point, right? We could always go talk about it some other time, but it was a great conversation to have with these folks because they have a concern of, on cybersecurity, but they also have a concern on how to delegate properly, right? What belongs to the CISO and what belongs to the CIO? What is the CIO looking over and what are they going to delegate down to the CISO? So that was kind of the stuff I heard this weekend or this week. They all want uh, everything, everything under them until shit hits the fan and the hack happens. And then it didn't happen <laughs> on my watch. Uh, it wasn't me. Listen, I set the policies. The CISO didn't do his job, right? Um, but no, no, these people, they were very caring. They're very concerned about what are, what's next, okay? Um, so we, uh, we ha- had the obvious conversations about, like, uh, insider threats. What do you do if you do have an insider threat? We demystified zero trust. I love the concepts behind zero trust. I know a lot of security companies are using it as like a marketing gimmick. So we kind of just broke down well what zero trust means and all the different elements within it. You know, so yeah, it, it went really well. Oh, that's good. That's fantastic. And travel went good. Yeah, man. Yeah, you know, it, it was good. You know, I'm working on my weight, so I was counting my steps and I was like doing extra walks and. Yeah, it was it was a really cool travel experience. Shout out to the folks in Miami. Miami was really dope. I would not shout out, however, the Miami airport. That <laughs> that place, oof. I, I'll give that a big oof. Yeah, Miami's rough. I normally, if I'm down in Miami, I, a lot of times I'll travel up to Fort Lauderdale and fly in and out of there. Now that Trump's not uh, in in the White House, like, cause it's right by uh, Mar-a-Lago, and so it got closed down a lot when he was uh, president. But but now it's it's easier to get in and out of, and it's a short ride down. Oh, no way. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That might be, uh, I guess I'll keep that in mind for next time because that Miami airport was insane. It, it was beautiful. Don't get me wrong. It was just the, the security lines were just outrageous. Fort Lauderdale is a lot smaller. It's a, it's a lot easier to, so yeah, different flight choices. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, but yeah, I got a big week for me this week. Uh, my son is going to prom and then he is graduating on Saturday Ooh-wee. from high school. So. Nice. So pretty exciting for me. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll I'll keep you updated on that. But uh, b- big day. I can't wait to hear all about it, man. That's going to be dope. So let's get on to our first story. Uh, you sent this one over, and I found it pretty interesting. Uh, the title is Toyota, car location data of 2 million customers exposed for 10 years. Holy shit, Hector. Holy shit. <laughs> Two million customers and 10 years of location data being put out there. Oh, man. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Well, you got to remember, Toyota is an old company. They've been around for quite some time. Their infrastructure is probably you know dated. There may be some legacy environments there. And you got to remember, these guys probably got onto the cloud in the, right in the beginning. So they may be dealing with misconfigurations or may have the misconfigurations in their cloud environment that could potentially lead to something like this. Yeah, that's what they're saying it was. It was a database mic- this, uh, configuration on their, their cloud, and it was 2,150,000 customers, uh, and the dates were between November 6, 2013, and April 17, 2023. Ten years of data that includes GPS, VIN numbers, and locate time and locations of where the vehicles were, were um, all throughout that 10 years. Holy shit. Well, I tell you, there's there's an intelligence officer somewhere in the world that's punching the air, pissed off that this has got closed out. Because theoretically, you could you could track a potential target using something like this, access to, to a database like this. Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, you know, I don't know who you, if your target's driving a Toyota and, and connected it to their, you know, in-car, you know, smart service for, you know, the, the voice or customer service stuff. But there's no, there's no, um, I would say, evidence or information that any of this was actually used. Yeah, that's true. It's just that it was available. So at the towards the end of the article, it said that Toyota released a statement that mentioned the possibility of video recordings that were taken outside the vehicles may have been exposed um, somewhere between November 14th of 2016 and April 4th of 2023. Well, you know, a seven-year period. What videos do you think they're talking about? Well, it has to be like backup cameras. Right. Maybe the backup cameras are connected somehow. You know, like the Tesla, the Teslas have this recording feature on the back of the cars. And, and I think maybe in the front, 
but I've seen videos of, of like Tesla's being vandalized and the owner will upload the video. Yeah, the side mirrors have it and all that. And, and that's yeah. a security feature that they sell. Yeah. But like, I didn't know like a backup camera on a Toyota was, was kept and or was uploaded to a Toyota. I had no idea either. It's kind of new to me. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't find it much else about this on, on the internet, but mm-hmm. uh, and it kind of just like squeezes it in at the end of the article, which is kind of strange. And it's only being it's being pulled from a Japanese language website that Toyota posts out there, so it's like a loose translation. I don't know. I th- I think more information needs to come out about this one. Well, it, it kind of reminds me of a situation where like you have to report a breach. Like, hey, by the way, guys, yeah, we might have a, a breach incident. Oh, you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of. Uh, it was a password manager that was that was breached, and in the beginning, their statements were like, "Yeah, they might have a we might have a breach situation." Oh, by the way, they they have the master the master encryption keys. Yeah, let's just leave it at a password keeper, not not say a proper noun. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it seems like they kind of threw that in there at the end, like, "Oh, by the way, they might also have footage, video footage." Yeah, yada 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 yada. Yeah, <laughs> don't worry about that though. Just just know that we we've taken care of this, and by the way, we apologize. But this is a good lesson, right? So this is for the audience here. You buy yourself a nice vehicle. You know they come with all the bells and whistles. In this case, you know Toyota has the the T Connect G Link, the G Link Light. They have G Book services. Every car now has some sort of extra service that you can pay for or subscribe to. Be mindful that every time, and we've talked about this in the past. Every time you sign up for a new service, a new account, you're creating something new, what you're doing is you're expanding your attack surface. And that's the same thing that you know we're kind of dealing with right here. Yeah. You know who wouldn't have this problem? Our boy oh. Elon over at Tesla. He doesn't, he doesn't put his stuff out there. <laughs> oh, that's not true. Remember, there was a story we did a few weeks ago. Shh, with, don't say that. Oh, come oh, on. Yeah, yeah. Well, <clears throat> my bad. Now that he's hired a CEO over at Twitter, he's got time to come on the show. Yeah, you know what? You're 100 percent right. I don't know what so, I don't know what, what I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. Our boy, our boy Elon. He's got <laughs> he's not got these problems. So good for him. Yeah. So Elon, <laughs> we'll have you on the show whenever you want to come on. There you go. We know he's a listener. So on to the next story. Oh, this one's a crazy one. Intel OEM private keys leaked a blow to UEFI boot security. So Oof. you want to explain to the people what OEM is? Yeah, I mean, I mean, OEM is basically the uh like the manufacturer, you know, software, or in, in, let's say we talk about cars, it's like uh, the original parts that was manufactured by the company. I mean, it basically means original equipment manufacturer, right? That's what that's what OEM stands for. So if you have a vehicle, let's say you have a Toyota, and you know you go to like something like Rock Auto. I love Rock Auto, by the way. You go to Rock Auto, and you want to replace um, your side mirrors for whatever reason they're broken. Something like a Rock Auto, where it's a massive warehouse. They will sell you the OEM, like the original parts of your car, but they'll also be able to sell you like third party, you know, outside of OEM accessories and so on. So, but in this case, we're talking about Intel had developed the chip here and inside that chip, there was private keys. You would use those private keys to extend, um, you know, uh, by either adding modules or firmware and so on. And that those keys were leaked, right? That's that's definitely an issue. Yeah. So what it is is so the 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 title has this thing UEFI, and so that's Unified uh, Extensible Firmware Interface, and, and that's sort of that's sort of the the program that when you start your computer, it starts loading things up. It says, oh, there's a mouse connected. Oh, there's a monitor connected. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's a keyboard connected. Here's everything, and it goes through and it it does this thing. It passes post. Um, it, everything's there. In older computers, it was called BIOS. I'm sure some people have heard of BIOS. You know, and the big difference between BIOS and UEFI is that the UEFI is stored on a file um, instead of on BIOS. It was you know stored stored on firmware. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's you know it's a little bit more. Uh, by, you remember BIOS was somewhat harder harder to change. Um, the UEFI is a little easier to change. Sure. Um, yeah. But so so now with the private keys to this boot sector being stolen. It's going to give bad guys the ability to change your boot up policies, and those boot up policies could include bypassing, you know, hardware security measures. Um, so, like things that say, you know, don't turn on my uh, microphone and don't turn on my um, my camera when I my start my computer. You know, they they can bypass things like that with it. Yeah, and you know, the thing is, and, and this is for the audience here, you know, as you kind of research this story, you'll see that. 
it wasn't that Intel was breached, right? It was a third-party MSI, Microstar International. And for those of you that that you know have bought maybe gaming laptops or PCs in the past, so you you, you know you might know what MSI is. The thing is that MSI. It's not the first time MSI has been targeted. There was several years ago. There was a really interesting supply chain attack that happened with CC Cleaner. Remember that, uh, Chris? That was an interesting one. I do. Yeah. And if you look at the targets that um, the attackers were looking for, uh, computers that were running CC Cleaner from Intel, MSI, and a couple other manufacturers. So yeah, so these companies are targeted for exactly this reason. If you have, you know, a, a processor. Uh, or you have the private keys to be able to, to modify the UAEFI uh, config, then you know what? There's a possibility that that could be used towards um, a further of a furthering of a supply chain attack, or um, maybe some sort of rootkit or bootkit. Yeah. So there, you know, I think this is still more of a developing story because where it's coming from is there's a ransomware group called uh, Money Message, and they're demanding four million dollars, and it doesn't seem like MSI is paying that money. Um, and so they're they're starting to leak some of the, these private keys, which is you know to put a little bit more pressure on them to get the money out. Yeah, but that doesn't work, right? I mean, the fact that this is in the media is definitely going to motivate MSI not to pay anything. That's one, because um, now they have to deal with brand repu- uh, brand damage and reputation damage. So the incentive that these attackers had is out the window. All they're going to do is force MSI to take that same that same four million dollars and you know work with Intel to start you know uh, distributing new firmware updates and. And updates kind of deal with this. So, I wonder if these private keys had a value in the O'Day world. Oh yeah, hundred percent. So, what's the purpose? Why would Money Message go out and try to, you know, they didn't get the four million from MSI. Why wouldn't they go out and try to sell these keys to O'Day dealers? Well, it depends, right? Like, like a, a quote-unquote legitimate zero-day dealer, or whatever, may not be able to buy this because it's stolen property, stolen intellectual property, or stolen keys at least. They cut. They probably could have tried to do the black market, but then the black market is a weird place itself. There's half of the people that you that probably will buy it from your agents themselves, and this will be closed down. And maybe you're not. You may not even get the money. It's true. Hey, Hector, somebody's calling you. Yeah, I know. I know, bro. <laughs> it's all right. Who was it? Answer I'm, it live on the show. <laughs> no, it was my manager. Ah, <laughs> uh, George. Yeah, shout out to George, the homie. Big shout out. George is a big listener. He listens every week. He listens every week. Phineas, leave George's call in there. I want a big <laughs> shout out to George. I'm a, I'm a big fan of George. Well, you know, we're trying to get iced tea on this, so hopefully that works out. Yeah, yeah. We were almost at dinner with him the other day. Ooh, but yeah, you know, those guys are busy. They're, they're like, like I know we're busy, but that's a different kind of busy they have. Like their their schedule is is uh, regulated down to like the minute or something. <laughs> I don't know. It'll be a race. Who gets on first, iced tea or Elon? Hector, how did it happen again? The next story, data of 237,000 U.S. government employees breached. Oy vey. Oy vey is right. Oh, my God. So uh, apparently there was a data breach at the U.S. Department of Transportation that uh, hit the system that processed TransServe, the transit benefits for U.S. employees. Uh, 114,000 current employees and 123 former U.S. employees got their PII personal identification information pwned. Yeah. I mean, it's always a tough one, especially when it's like government employees. Some of these people are probably working on sensitive projects or work. Oh, their work is sensitive in general. So to have their PII exposed is even more concerning. Yeah, that's always the big security. People with security clearances, now this generates a list. I mean, this goes back to just like the uh, OPM hack in 2014, 2015. That you know, everyone with a security clearance got their PII stolen. Yeah, no, that's tough. You know, and, and it really, it really makes you think. I mean, at this point, between all of the different breaches we've seen over the last few years, pretty, pretty much every person in this country is doxed, right? But not only that, you know, moving forward, how do you deal with this? Let's say you're the DOT or US DOT, um, and you're like, okay, so this breach happened, and more likely will happen again maybe in the future, how can we limit this, you know, from happening again? How can we be preemptive in, in kind of safeguarding and securing our, um, our, you know, databases and data sets? It's a tough one, you know, because right now we don't really know how they got in, the attackers, that is. 
Uh, we don't know what the attack paths are. We don't know what U.S. DOT could have done to prevent this. We can speculate, but what about encryption at rest? So, I mean, people always talk about data uh, is either encrypted when at rest or in transit. Well, in transit sounds great. I mean, it works. We use it now. But encryption at rest, that would mean that something somewhere, a web application of, of some sort of worker has to decrypt the data before it's being you know, handled somewhere, right? Somebody has to write those checks or some system has to write those checks out to these employees. Somewhere along the line, the data has to be decrypted, which means that there's a key somewhere that probably should be, would be accessible by an attacker if they're on the inside network, right? So how do you deal with that problem at that point? I don't know. But uh, one of the interesting parts I found in this story is that uh, it said the U.S. DOT had to notify Congress Friday in an email. <laughs> I would love to see that email. Can you, can you speculate as to what that email would look like? <laughs> Dear Congress, it happened again. <laughs> what do you put the subject of the email? <laughs> like, how do you craft that part of it? It'd be like, oh, by the way. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, by the way, smiley face, Friday. Your transit checks on its way. Oh, and we got pwned. Well, think about it like this. Imagine the employees that had to draft that email. And they're like, you know what? Fuck it. We'll just wait till Friday to kind of drop the, to drop the bombshell, right? I, I just find it strange that a notification is done via email. And, and I just, you know, the different things. Like, who do you include and what do you call it? Yeah. Well, it makes you think, right? You look at you look at countries like Estonia. Estonia is considered probably one of the more modernized digital governments on the planet. You know, you can get a passport through the websites and you could open up a business through the, through the government websites. And there's a lot you could do from here in Estonia. So now my question is, are there lessons that we can learn and incorporate? Or I would love to speak to like an Estonian security professional to see where they stand and where their policies are. I mean, at the end of the day, we kind of need to figure out how to deal with this problem. You know, I understand that we have we still have a lot of legacy environments. I'm willing to wager that you this US DOT system or application or whatever it was that was breached, because we don't know the exact details yet, probably was legacy. It was probably an older web application or something that was compromised. Like we don't know, but I'm I'm willing to wager. So now the question is, okay, how do we deal with this moving forward? And it, it's hard to say. Well, the government answer is to throw money at it. Yeah. yeah. Throw money at it and uh, and wish for the best. No, but you know, you know, we got to be honest about this, ladies and gentlemen. You know, and this this doesn't only apply to U.S. folks, U.S. citizens. There's there's listeners here from around the world. This kind of breach, you could apply it in your own home country. If you're in, you know, um, wherever it is that you're at. If you're in Brazil or Portugal or Spain or whatever, you know, and, and a breach like this happens in your home country, how can your how can your government deal with this? And it seems to be something that we're, we're all still learning. And I think it's worth the conversation. So I'm glad we had the story in here. I hope the audience has a few moments to think about it. Maybe we send in an email. What do you think uh, the US DOT could have done to prevent something like this? But let me ask you this. You brought it up and you said that, you know, all of our information is out there. It's all been breached someplace or another. You know, this one's a little bit different because this actually classifies and groups these people uh, into government employees. You know, mm -hmm. or you know, had some sort of maybe has a clearance or some sort of access. So, you know, it raises the, the threat level on them a little bit. But is it a big deal having your data stolen anymore? <laughs> like I said, at this point, we, we probably all have been breached in some way and somehow. I think so long as people are aware on how to deal with a post-breach scenario, for example, like my all my credit bureaus are frozen, right? So I'm expecting that someone somewhere has my social security number. The moment they try to open an account, hopefully it gets blocked, fingers crossed. But that's a preemptive measure, right? Having secondary passwords on utility bills, that's a secondary measure. And it's also preemptive, right? That's what I personally do. And I hope the audience does that as well. Now, for these government employees, it's tough. Because now, like you said, they're categorized as government employees. They could be targeted by foreign actors. And so now I'm sure they, they need to come up with some policies to help these people deal with that. Because a credit freeze is not going to stop you from being targeted by a foreign actor. So, You know, I guess it's true. I guess maybe I live in a little bubble. And sometimes I forget that because the, all these things you do, I, I do the same thing. Credit freeze, secondary passwords, you know, two-factor on everything. And I just figure everyone does that. But I don't think it's not it's not true. These 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 hacks and these breaches and 
all that wouldn't happen over and over and over again. So yeah. I, I got to step outside my bubble once again. <laughs> I, what I take is just, you know, oh, that's how we do it, you know? Yeah. Do you ever miss your days of social engineering? You were, you were quite, a, quite good at it there for a while. Not so much. Like, I, I don't really use social engineering much unless it's for work. Um, when I was the bad guy and I would, like, you know, get in contact with somebody and, and kind of work them, um, there was an objective, right? And the objective was being able to compromise their, at least their thinking for a few minutes enough to be able to leverage it in a way that I could utilize it in, in something that I needed um, or needed access to, right? I don't do that anymore. That's not, you know, I, I don't use it personally. I guess that's my point. And I, I would even caution anyone that's in cybersecurity doing social engineering campaigns. Make sure you separate that from your, your personal life. Because the one thing you don't want to do is become a, a freaking narcissist <laughs> and start utilizing it to, to get your way around life. It's not cool. You're not going to feel right after a while. Do you ever do it for fun just to, just to exercise that part of your brain outside of work? Only when I'm catching someone in a lie. If someone comes to me with some lie and they're like, yeah, so this happened and that happened. I'm like, yeah, cool. So how, how did that happen? Oh, okay. Yeah, it happened this way. Okay, cool. Okay, uh, interesting. And then I'll just sit there and kind of let them talk. I mean, at that point, you're just letting the person talk and, and kind of burying themselves as they go deeper and deeper into the lie. And then at some point, you're like, all right, cool. I'm done with this. But that's as far as I go. I wouldn't use it for like, uh, you know, to get information out of, you know, a company or something. No, I do it on planes. Like if the person no next to me is talkative and wants to talk, yeah. like like I respect, I'm the guy that gets in the Uber and respects exactly what the Uber driver wants to do. He wants to talk, I'm going to ask him questions. He wants to listen to music, I'm going to sit there silently and listen to the music with him. You know, same thing on a plane. I sit down next to somebody on a plane and I'm going to follow their lead. They want to talk, we're, we got a five-hour flight of talking ahead of them. So you're like a living honeypot. <laughs> uh, maybe. Maybe a honey bear or something. There you go. But, uh, <laughs> well, maybe, I think a honey bear might be a, a, fra a term for something else. But what do you... I don't know. I don't know these terms. <laughs> I just the ones you, you teach me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, I socially engineered a famous person one time to get the password of their phone. Nah, like, get out I, of here. I, I sat on a plane. Yeah, I won't tell you who it is. I'll tell you off the air Okay. Uh, uh, who, who it was. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, but she was she was famous, very wealthy. Sat next to me on the plane. We were flying down to Miami, I think. Yeah, um, New York to Miami, and uh, and I got her four digit code on her iPhone. No way. Yep, got talking about kids and all that, and she like turns her phone to me and just types it in right in front of me. It's funny how that works because I had a situation where I went to the airport literally this week when I went to Miami and I was coming back, and there was a girl that I saw like standing outside just completely lost. You know, there was something wrong with her. And I walked by her and I had no intentions of interacting with her, giving her space. And then she hits me up like, hey, you know, I'm sorry to bother you, but can I use your phone? So the security-minded part of me is like, no, do not let this person <laughs> on your phone at all. But then the human side of me was like, you know what? I have no idea this, this girl's lost. I have no idea what her situation is. So I let her use my phone. So I have three phones and I let her use like the normal, the one that I use for everyday stuff. But even then, I was still hawking. Like, what is she doing on my phone? You know, it's weird how that works, man. You know, sometimes you interact with folks, and, you, and you, sometimes you forget how important the security measures are. <laughs> yeah, I know. I hear you. So let me ask the question yeah. that the audience is asking right now. Yeah. If you have the one phone for normal everyday stuff, what's the other two phones for? Oh well, one is business, one is personal, and then one is personal, personal. So that's like, Ooh. yeah, but that's. <laughs> It's not that exciting, folks. I don't have an exciting personal life. I have just my family members on it, and we just talk back and forth. Uh, when I say personal, I mean like everybody else outside of family. So you have business, personal, and personal, personal. That's right. Which one do I use? Well, you're personal, personal always. Oh, I like that. Yeah. All right, the next story. Mastermind behind the Twitter 2020 hack pleads guilty and faces up to 70 years in prison. Oof. Yeah. Good for him or uh, a little too much? Well, I mean, this is a tough one, right? Because, yeah, this was a social engineering campaign, ladies and gents. It wasn't necessarily a hack. But this guy went way above and beyond the scope, right? I mean, I'm sure you, many, many of you may remember 
in 2020 were a bunch of uh, pretty infamous and, and uh, very, uh, I would say, uh, loud compromises on Twitter that happened. And what I mean loud is like it was all over the news and newspapers. Um, you had some celebrities. You had people like Elon Musk and Obama, Bill Gates, et cetera, that they had their Twitter accounts hijacked. And those accounts began kind of posting like crypto scams. It was a hell of a time. It was right in the middle of the summer. It was all the rave. 70 years, though. I think we both know that 70 years is just a theoretical max, right? He's probably not going to face that much time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he social engineered some people at Twitter. So it's not like he even social engineered, you know, Barack Obama or Bill Gates or, or our boy Elon, um, you know, so. But he seized over 130 Twitter accounts. Um, that's, uh, that's quite a bit, you know. Yeah. And well, the thing is that he wasn't even the main person. Like there were multiple people involved that had compromised um, Twitter employees over social engineering. And he was one of the guys. Right. And I'm sure the others have been either arrested or are in the process of being arrested. But I have to say, man, like this, I have to wonder, they made what? 120 grand in a few hours on crypto scams. It was not worth it. Now your life is, you know, essentially on hold. You have to go to prison. Guaranteed it's going to happen. And this is something I tell you the audience all the time. I've I've been through it. I've I did the stupid mistakes. I, I I kind of went through this process. I had to go to prison. I had to meet Chris. I met Chris. Was meeting Chris was obviously the the highlight of all of it. But everything else was totally not worth it. It gave me an opportunity to kind of like find myself again and become a better person. But it took years and years and years of my life on hold in order for me to get to this point today. So I, I'll be honest with you, Chris, like I, I wish this guy and, and those people, um, you know, uh, the best. I hope they can recover from this and change their lives and maybe even be instructors or teachers or get into cyber professionally, you know. And it's going to be hard with this many felonies on their record. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be tough. So, it's not easy. No. So but uh, but I mean, I can see how it happens. I mean, yeah. you figure out a way to get a hold of a Twitter employee and then that Twitter employee gives you back end access. And then you like maybe changes your change your friend's password and, and get get his get his account, and then it kind of just kind of snowballs from there. And you're like, oh shit, I just changed you know an ex president's password. Yeah, well, think about it like this: not only did these guys you know do the the crypto scam and they hijack these accounts, but they even elevated to sim swapping. So like they were really hardcore about what it is that they were doing. Um, they were after funds. They were after compromising people's accounts. But also, you know, what they don't realize is they, they were also, you know, destroying people's lives along the way. You have no idea, you know, what the consequences of this actually was. People lost their jobs, perhaps, at Twitter. People probably had suffered financial damages. Um, like, this is no longer a game. And unfortunately, Chris, and, and this might be the my controversial point here, and that is that I went through the process and it gave me an opportunity to find myself. And I think maybe these guys need the same. Because it's it's how else you're gonna learn, you know. It's uh, it's not a good lifestyle to live. That's for sure. Yeah, you hope so. But I mean, based on you know, it sounds like a lot of these guys were extradited to the United States. It sounds like they're not going to be able to be utilized, you know, to, to work off some of this time. Um, so so that same deal might not be offered to them. Yeah, no doubt. And you know, they're just gonna have to just deal with the time. But we both know that. So what, this is considered a white-collar crime, 2 to 10? That's kind of what they're facing, right? That could be wrong, but that's still enough time to get your shit together, to be honest with you, man. Yeah, I mean, it all depends on what the judge, you know, if the judge wants to really, uh, you know, set an example out of them. But but you're right, I mean, they didn't just do the social engineering on Twitter. They, they switched over and did the sin swapping on, on a, a, a couple of big TikTok and Snapchat accounts. Um, and then they did a sin swapping on a crypto exchange. And they, they stole almost $800,000 from them. Yeah, no, and that, so, that right there is going to elevate their, their, their guidelines, right? Their sentencing guidelines. Um, first of all, it's a lot of money to steal. And two, you're going to do it to a company in New York City out of all places. When you know the DA over here and, you know, the state attorneys and everybody involved, like, they're hardcore on prosecuting you for something like this. So... Worst off, buddy. They're, they're, these guys are being handled by the Southern District of New York. New York. Yeah. You know, same people that did your case. Yeah, well, Judge Preska, she's a, she's a wonderful lady, but if you get on her <laughs> wrong side, you know, she's going to blaze you. Yeah, I don't think she's there anymore. But, no, no uh, way. She left? She retired? I think she retired, yeah. Well, 
she was an awesome lady. After after my whole ordeal, I sent her a nice letter, and uh, yeah. hopefully she got to read it. Hopefully, you know. I wonder if she'd ever come on Hacker in the Fed. Well, you know what, brother? If you could get her on, <laughs> if you would get her on, I'll be so happy. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's one to do live. Yeah. If you could get her or Jim Pastori on here, I'll be very happy. The the problem with Jim is I don't know if he can talk about uh, his experience and some of the stuff. Yeah, I got you. The, because of the lawyer, but but no, I, I still uh, I still have Jim's contact and and can reach out to that. So we can we can start try to get that to happen. Awesome. I just don't know how open he can be about the case. So we'll, we can find out. Yeah, well, we can talk about other stuff like law, right, and cybercrime, and you know, it would be a great conversation to just talk about cybercrime and law and whether it's obsolete. Do does it need changes? Do any of the laws need changes? These are questions that I, I personally asked, like the federal defenders, when I had to deal with them, and they're very nice people. Shout out to Peggy and Phil. And the consensus is that you know a lot of these laws may be obsolete by now. You know, they may they may may, may require. Some changes. I I know that even when Obama was on on uh, when he was president, he was considering making some drastic changes to the cyber laws, right? Yeah, and who we're talking about is uh, Jim Vistori. He was uh, the pros the the prosecutor at the end of Hector's case, um, and so kind of walked walked Hector through that whole process at the end. Um, and now he's a big time lawyer at Deba Voice. So if anybody ever needs a uh, a really good lawyer, reach out to Jim Vistori over at Deba. Oh yeah, he's he is he is a professional. The super professional. So I'm sure you guys notice when I, when I speak about Chris and the way he, he and I met, especially the first episodes, uh, one of the takeaways for me was how professional Chris was. Like a lot of the case, you know, we know when you watch movies or TV shows and you see FBI guys, you know, whatever, sometimes they're professional, sometimes they're like cowboys, like the whole Waco thing, right? The whole series. Chris was probably like like what, what you would see on TV in terms of like a guy in a, like in a suit, very professional. And, and caring, right? That's that's the difference, maybe. With Jim, I had the same kind of thought. Like, wow, this guy is really like a pro. Like, I would see him like Law and Order or something. Like, he was very about his business and no BS, and he kept it straight with me. And that's that's something that helped me deal with this whole case, Chris. I'm, I'm sure you, you've heard me say that a thousand times. Yeah, no, Jim, Jim's great. So let's try to get him on the show. We'll reach out. We'll send him this clip and show him the love. <laughs> there you he'll, go. He'll come. Maybe he can come on in, in just for a few minutes, maybe. Um, we'll see. Next story. You sent over, and this is one more for you guys should check out in the link in the description. It's a, it's a video of a T-Mobile worker joking about adding extra lines. Um, he's staying at the, the counter, and he just uses his tablet, and he adds a couple lines to a customer without letting them know. Um, and, and this kind of just goes to, you know, the stories that Hector and I talk about with SIM swapping um, and how easy it is for, you know, just even the the low level worker at, at a T-Mobile store or a kiosk uh, or any, you know, cell phone store um, has to your account and the details that they have to it and, and what they can do to that. It's scary, right? Because imagine this. Imagine you go down um, to T-Mobile, to a kiosk, to anywhere and you open up an account. You've been responsible about your security measures. You you have a, a relatively small tax surface. Um, you're very serious about your privacy. You go to this T-Mobile guy. You're like, hey, buddy, I need a new phone for my kid. You open up a line. You think everything's cool. And then, you know, you go on TikTok later and see a video of him joking around that he just added, you know, extra lines to your phone, to your phone account. And now you have to pay double or triple because this guy wants to make an extra commission. I tell you, there is a, a definitely a problem with people having access to things that they should not have. Well, it gets complicated because someone at a kiosk at a T-Mobile store or, or at a store um, should probably be able to access your account details because they need to either add or remove lines, add a new phone, right? How do we deal with a rogue employee that does something like this? Is there even anything you can do to deal with this, uh, Chris? I mean, I think there is. So I know in the FBI that we have this big, uh, you know, whole system with all these different FBI cases and if you try to look up a case that you're not supposed to look up, they shut that shit down real quick. Um, I don't know. Have I told you the story about D.B. Cooper? Oh, I was going to. I thought you, you had to keep that quiet. But if you want to tell us that story, that's a cool story. Yeah, no. I mean, one time I, uh, I was interested in uh, seeing what maybe the FBI files were on D.B. Cooper. Uh, so I went into the system. and I looked it up and I got a phone call like within seconds. that said, close that shit down. You can't look at that. <laughs> 
So, but, but I know, like, I've heard of other agents that, that it's gotten in trouble for, you know, looking at things you don't look. You know, they give you a little warning about why you're looking at that. I, mine was just curiosity. Obviously, I did not have a reason to have to be looking at that stuff. And probably, you know, understood why the sensitivity around it. Well, I'll be honest with you. If I was an FBI agent, I would probably look up the DB case as well, DB Cooper case as well. I love that case. Like, I, 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 I love the whole mystery behind it. I, I don't understand how the cigarettes were lost. Um, you know, that is just mind boggling to me. The, 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 you know, that, that's one of those ones where, like, you know, it's strange that, that clues will, they, they had, didn't have DNA testing back then, but, you know, how the science will catch up and you can solve old cases like that. So, I don't know. I've seen a lot of different documentaries on the D.B. Cooper case, and, and I would love for a definitive answer to come out. I would love the money to be found. Where is the money? Yeah. You know, besides those torn up bills that were found on that one bank, was it, you know, it wasn't, didn't seem like a lot of it. There, there's still, you know, 190 some odd thousand dollars out there. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna, before we kind of like, like move forward here, I do have a question. Okay. Who do you think D.B. Cooper was? I, I think there was that guy in San Diego, the the former military guy. Okay. Um, from what I've seen in the documentaries, but I mean, there 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 was no deathbed confession before he died or anything like that. But from from all the, I mean, this is all the public information. Again, yeah. I couldn't look in the FBI files. I tried, and I would tell you if I saw it. But well, I tell you, every time I look into that story, there's always a new character I'm looking at, a new profile, and the last one that I was really thinking could be it or could be the person was the guy that the FBI arrested as the copycat to D.B. Cooper. The guy engaged an uh, airplane hijacking the same exact way, same exact details. He failed, obviously got arrested. The FBI thought he was just a copycat to D.B. Cooper. But here's the thing. The theory is he was probably D.B. Cooper because he even looked at he looked like him, right? And probably what happened is he lost the money and said, damn, I'm going to have to do this again. He did it again. Now here's where it gets crazy. When the FBI started investigating this gentleman, all of his friends were like former military. This might even be the same guy. All of his friends were like former military and nobody were being cooperative during the investigation. And it just kind of went nowhere. I think there'll be an answer. You know, who knows if we'll ever get an answer to, you know, the JFK assassination, all these things, oh, all these man. unsolved mysteries really kind of bother me. Um, you know me. I, I like to put a little bow tie in all these things. <laughs> yeah, no, it's always good to have a conclusion. I kind of see this as like, you know how is obviously you and I are fascinated by those 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 stories, those cases. There's gonna be a point where you're gonna have folks just like us, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, talking about massive hacks that had no attribution. Hey, do you who do you think actually did that hack back in RSA and stole the the, the encryption key to like the RSA tokens or whatever? And it's gonna be like a Hector and a Chris <laughs> talking about that case. Fascinating stuff, man. All right, Hector, our last story we're going to do tonight, Google Cybersecurity Certificate. So Google's now going to offer, you know, 100% remote learning, uh, online learning certificate in cybersecurity. Um, takes about, they say, three to six months of completion, and you don't need any prior experience to do it. Um, good thing, bad thing. What do you think? No, this is great. This is fantastic. Big shout out to Google and Google Security for putting this together. We kind of needed something like this, okay? There's been kind of like a, a slowdown on certificate programs or certificates or training programs out there. Some of them have become obsolete, right? I've seen some people on Twitter say that this Google Cybersecurity Certificate would be like a an alternative to like the Security Plus or a precursor to Security Plus, okay? Which by now is is is, is quite dated in uh, in essence. But big shout out to Google, and I'm looking forward to look at the content. I might just do the certificate itself just to see, you know, kind of what the content looks like. It's uh, it's self-paced, and it, they say at about 10 hours per week, it's going to take you somewhere between three and six months. Okay. Well, I, it costs, but, you know, it's a minimal cost. Yeah, and yeah. The faster you do it, the cheaper it is for you. But some of the things they're going to do is they're going to use uh, tools like Python and Linux and SQL and security information and event manager tools uh, and intrusion detection systems. So, you know, so it's a wide variety of different useful things. Yeah. Um, you know, again, we've not used it. We've not done it. We don't know, you know, we just, what Google's put out there about it. Um, but it's an interesting, you know, people are always reaching out to us, you know, how do I get into cybersecurity? Yeah. You know, maybe if you're in the industry, 
maybe this isn't the best place, but this is a good start. You know, a, a low investment. Uh, some extra time to mm -hmm. see if you know cybersecurity really is your thing. Right now, it's only in, uh, only available in English, so maybe it'll it'll. I think they're looking to broaden the horizons. There also are financial assistance opportunities, so the link will be in the description. You guys want to you know your kid to do something this summer, you know, high schooler or you know just graduating from high school like my kid. You know, this might not be a bad idea. Yeah, and the one thing I'll say is at least for people in New York, I'm not sure if it's across all the different states. When I was on unemployment like several years ago, for after I, left, uh, I got fired from my, my old job, the Department of Labor gives you free access to Coursera, which is where the Google Cybersecurity Certificate is hosted. So if there's any of you on unemployment right now, you could probably go through your Department of Labor website, go into like the training and education section, sign up for Coursera through, that, through your account, and you may be able to get this at a discount or maybe even free, right? Just definitely check it out. If you have success in that, email us. Let us know, and we'll forward the uh, the details to everybody else. Look at some of the stuff you'll be learning, right? You'll be learning about uh, Python, Linux, SQL, security information and event management, SIM tools, right? Fantastic. You'll also be learning about intrusion detection systems or IDSs. It's almost as though we're reading from the same sheet. <laughs> yes, that's very <laughs> I true. Said that, I said that five minutes ago when you were looking up whether it was free or not. That is so funny. <laughs> We'll have to edit I that could, one out. I could tell. No, leave it in. I love these parts. The people will love these parts. Like, like, like word for word, you said exactly what I said. Because I and I knew you were looking around to try to find that free part. Yes, I was. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, you know what? That that's that's good. That's good. I fell for it. But no, uh, that's that's pretty dope. All right, Hector, we got a couple questions. Let's do it, listeners. If you guys got a question for us, reach out to us at questions at Hacker and the Fed. A lot of great listener feedback this week, Hector. A lot of people loving the show. We'll get into it a little bit. Um, we did get an email a few weeks back from uh, Thomas in Canada asking us about, you know, uh, protecting our parents and vulnerability to scams and all that. I'll say, Thomas, your question has been on the list uh, for a couple shows. We're doing a whole episode next week about um, pig butchering. Um, and pig butchering is sort of like a, you know, online uh, scamming situation. So uh, I'm sure a lot of the questions will be answered in that one, Thomas. So uh, I haven't been ignoring you. Um, just, uh, just you know, we had a whole show dedicated to your questions. So thanks for sending that in. Hector, the next question is from Robert, and he had a question specifically for you, or a couple questions. Uh, have you had many failed attacks that ended drastically? Uh, what were some of the biggest letdowns? What were some of the worst consequences from a failed attack? Have you ever thought you had them before being foiled by some security technique. <laughs> yeah, so those are, those are some great questions. Um, have I had any failed attacks for sure? When uh, I was a bad guy, or even now as a professional, right? I would say that they definitely did happen in the past. And I'll give you a quick story there. You know, there was a moment where, uh, there was a scenario rather, where I was compromising a foreign government. Uh, without mentioning names, I don't want to be assassinated anytime soon. I was definitely um, trying to infiltrate a foreign government. I got access to some of their mail systems. Um, this was before all the craze of moving your email to like Google and you know Office 365. So I had access to the mail spools. That's what they were called, right? Or inboxes. Um, I had access. I had problems with translation because it was a different. I would say the country that I was targeting um, their language is not English, obviously. So as I was looking for ways to kind of deal with mass translation, we didn't have AI or automated tools back then. Somehow I lost access. My persistence methods obviously were not successful or they were detected. And it turns out that um, the attack path that I was also leveraged, which was an issue in a web application, was also you know, dealt with. The server went down. They probably had kernel level logging, which I've seen here and there. Maybe that went to somebody's, you know, pager or alert uh, email box, inbox. Someone somewhere noticed that I was in their systems and they, they shut down the attack path. They removed my persistence. So failed attacks happened. Now, that was when I was a bad guy. As a good guy, we engaged a client, uh, a very, I would say mid-sized client, but they're very important. I can't really give you the details on that. Let's just say is is as small as a pop, mom and pop business but important to the U.S. government. I'll leave it at that. Very important. And so this company um, had to deal with the acceptance of Word documents and PDFs and, and Excel sheets 
because they were basically dealing with a lot of invoices and, and uh, so on from uh, a U.S. government agency. Leave it at that. Okay. So the social engineering campaign involved creating very close-looking, spear-phishing attempts, email with an attachment. The email went into the inbox. Great. So I circumvented the technical controls there. The person opens the Word document, and we know that because they downloaded the Word document from one of my external servers that looked legitimate. Cool. So we know that. Now, what's crazy is, is that I didn't get a C2 connection back or I didn't get any credentials back. Okay, so I investigated that. When the file was downloaded, downloaded on a instance that we had that had, uh, it was basically hosted at third-party servers, like AWS Google Cloud. So we knew that the download happened. But here's where it gets iffy. The C2 framework or, or host was using an IP address, that's one, um, for, the out, for the reverse connection. And two, the harvester, okay? So we were harvesting credentials. The harvester happened over HTTPS on a domain, right? Legitimate certificate and all, but we could not get anything beyond that initial download. Here's what I found out. The client had something called DNS categorization. And because the IP address for the C2 was not categorized, and because the domain that we used for the, the credential harvesting was also not categorized, it was a new domain, those requests were blocked. And that was a failed attempt. The social engineering campaign itself was a fail, and it was a success for them. They did very well. They had to deal with like enhancing technical controls, obviously, because we could get emails into their inboxes. But that small detail, that small technical control they implemented, in this case being DNS categorization, actually you know, did a great job. And it's a great tool. It works. So I hope, I hope that answers your question. Did that force you to change your modus operandi for future attacks? It definitely motivated me to start purchasing or working to categorize domains that I use in, in social engineering campaigns um, or using third-party services like Google Calendar. Google Calendar works very well. Well, it worked very well. I think uh, Google has removed links because of all these phishing campaigns. But using a third party that is already documented or rather categorized, you know, still works very well today. So the next question is from Rich. Rich is a uh, former um, uh, network engineer, and he was wondering if software companies program exploits in when they write the code because it makes them money on the back end or because <laughs> it makes a security company money. Uh, pretty controversial topic here, Rich. Uh, but, but let's try to tackle this one, Hector. Well, Rich, you know, you're, you're teeter-tottering on conspiracy theory, my friend. But no. Chris is right. It is a controversial topic because we've seen some evidence of this in the past. I'll give you a great example. So back in the 80s and 90s, there was the VX scene, right? So people, people would create viruses and malware, or what we call malware now. They were called viri or viruses back then. And they were mostly, you know, pretty benign. They were goofy, right? They'll post a picture of Cookie Monster or something, or they'll just, you know, stop. They'll, they'll disable some keys on your keyboard. A lot of annoyance. Now, it's interesting because once antiviruses became a thing, all of a sudden we had a massive explosion of viruses that, you know, just kind of were released. All sorts of viruses, right? Benign ones, goofy ones, and then they became like, you know, basically wipers or wiperware that we have now. They became more and more sophisticated and polymorphic and non-static with anti-debugging capabilities, even to this day. So the theory was, Chris, and I'm sure you heard this in the past, that the antivirus companies, they had developers that were probably developing some of this virus or viri or malware and releasing it to the wild and selling their product as the antidote. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I believe it. Um, I mean, I remember a company back when I was an agent, there was uh, DDoS was really bad on some sites. Um, and there was a company in Miami that did DDoS mitigation. And they didn't even pick up the phone for forty thousand unless you had forty thousand dollars. Send them forty thousand dollars, and they'll take your call. Um, and that uh, as soon as they, uh, as soon as you pay the forty thousand dollars, they had the traffic rerouted through their bandwidth and all that, and was able to filter things out, um, quote unquote, or the DDoS just stopped really quick. Um, 
So, mm. uh, you know, I'm not saying they it were a company iffy. that was DDoS. You know, I wanted to open a case on it, but uh, unfortunately, my supervisor said if we opened the case, they had to send it to the mining field office. So Oof. I wasn't going to waste the time <laughs> opening the case. Yeah. Well, DDoS was a big thing, especially in the 2000s. And it was a big business. There was a lot of money involved. I remember there was a case. I forgot where exactly. It might even be the same. No, nah, it's not the same because you guys didn't open a case against them, right? There was a whole data center uh, called Funet. Some of you guys may remember this, where they had this massive data center with all these different pipes and had all the bandwidth and broadband in the planet. And uh, they were just doing DDoS for hire. <laughs> they were the bad guys. Were they also doing DDoS mitigation? Probably. You could do it on both ends. Yeah. You know, it's a lot easier if you're doing the DDoS to stop the DDoS. <laughs> That's right. Well, I know the FBI finally got those guys. Like they, they oh, went yeah. down pretty hard. Like that was no joke. Um, but before they got arrested, they were killing it. Oh, sorry. We did acronyms. DDoS, a distributed denial of service attack. Oh. Um yes. so it's basically like I shut down your servers. Um, imagine like your telephone. I wanted to make sure you didn't get any telephone calls. Mm -hmm. I would just keep calling your phone and hanging up, and then you wouldn't be able to receive a call. Um, that's sort of a simplistic way of how DDoS works. Uh, the distributed is used on a bunch of different computers to do that, to inundate the server so it can't respond to legitimate requests. Yeah, and even piggybacking off of your, your, your example there, right? So the denial of service would be calling someone over and over. A distributed denial of service would be having like 10 phones making phone calls at the same time, completely overwhelming any chance of any, um, you know, chance to pick up a phone or even make a phone call, right? Yeah, to the to the point in, in you know, computer DDoS is knocking the server over, which means like shutting it down, taking it offline uh, because so much traffic is, is overwhelmed. It. Well, that reminds me of a fun story, if you don't mind. I love fun stories. Okay. <laughs> So back in like the early 2000s on uh, FNet, people used to create party lines, you know, these basically like phone conferences that they would either card with stolen credit cards or maybe some of these guys worked at uh, telephone companies that they would create these phone conferences. And one day I hop on a phone conference and I start having a conversation with a couple of my, couple of my friends from FNet, big shout out to Mob and, and Storm Princess and those people. And one of the guys that was listening, and I think this was his phone conference, he was just sitting back listening and at some point made a comment, a snarky comment. And I think he's a listener of this podcast. So if you're listening, bro, ex-mage, this dude, <laughs> this dude, um, you know, I, I kind of started arguing with him. And we went on FNet and I hopped on my friend's server, which he self-hosted at a rack somewhere at a data center, local, local data center. And... Let's just say that his entire data center was taken offline, uh, Chris. And, <laughs> and shout out to my friend Brent. Unfortunately, he had to deal with um, that bill. He got a, a bandwidth bill of like $40,000. It was that crazy. Yeah. I mean, I think he ended up getting it discounted heavily, right? He still had to pay something. But I think that's the day he took his service off of FNAT. So DDoS, you know, was crazy back in the days. So... Hector, quick update on the merchandise. We talked about making some Hacker in the Fed merchandise and see if, you know, the listeners will get some feedback. Got a lot of great feedback this week. Nah, get out of here. Yeah, yep. People are doing it. So we're going to move forward. Uh, you know, we're going to set up a store at uh, HackerInTheFed.com. Nice. Um, we'll sell some hats and some sweatshirts, maybe some T-shirts. <laughs> um, reached out. Uh, one of our biggest fans, Joe, he's a former NYBD detective. He wants to wear it. Um, Oh, yeah, Jameer Joe. reached out. He wants to want some. Uh, Corey reached out. Now, Corey reached out, and I got to read you a quote that Corey wrote in his mm -hmm. email. Talking about he's going to buy some stuff. Um, that he became a listener because multiple former FBI agents at uh, the systems uh, integration consulting firm he works at recommended the show. So shout out to whoever that, that company is, and, and Corey and his former FBI agents. Hopefully I know some of them. Uh, but Corey said uh, – You've helped me feel more comfortable in an ever-growing digital landscape, and for that, I want to show immense gratitude. Corey, thank you for those words. Um, Hector and I, it means a lot to us. It really motivates us to uh, go on. So, um, you know, these guys reached out. Hector, I just showed you before the show what the, your hat's going to look like. Um, I'm hoping I can use your mug as a model on the website. Yes, I'm done. Perfect. So you get a free hat out for, for it. All right. Just let me take your picture. So. I'm with it, man. You can take all the pictures you want. Oh, nice. Well, that, well, hey, hey, we're still recording. Hey. <laughs> hey. 
So great episode, Hector. I really appreciate the conversation. Uh, everybody out there, new episodes every Thursday. Download, subscribe, wherever you get your podcast. Be like Joe and share us on social media, the kind words. Uh, try to get the show out there and reach more people so they live a little bit more of a secure lifestyle. There you go. I like that. So, all right, Hector. Cheers, my friend. Cheers. This has been a pleasure.